0: saints you can see wow this microphone is loud you know i have a loud voice so i don't need that much mic so i better lower my voice but not lower my spirit okay now um you can see the general subject for this time this weekend is maintaining a healthy christian life and a healthy church life and uh Firstly, I'd like to focus on this word maintaining, maintaining. Uh, The word maintain means that this is a day-by-day exercise. We need to maintain a healthy Christian life. We need to maintain a healthy church life. And when I think of the word maintain, uh, I can't help thinking about Brother Watchman Nee, who towards the end of his life, when he was martyred in 1972, he wrote a letter to one of his close relatives. And in his letters, he couldn't mention the Lord's name because they would filter the letter. Uh, they, They wouldn't allow him to mail a letter with the Lord's name on it. But in one of his letters, he said, I've learned how to maintain my joy. I really like that. I've learned how to maintain my joy. Even in prison, he was able to maintain his joy and enjoyment of Christ. Now the word healthy. The word healthy, if you look this up in the dictionary, it says freedom from disease or abnormality. Freedom from disease or abnormality. We don't We don't want to have any spiritual disease in our Christian life or church life. We don't want to have any abnormality in our Christian life or church life. We want to be normal Christians. An overcomer is a normal Christian. And that's why we have books entitled The Normal Christian Life, The Normal Christian Faith, and The Normal Christian Church Life. Uh, We want to come back to normality. Healthy also means a condition of optimal well-being, optimal, O-P-T-I-M-A-L. So we want to be in a condition of optimal well-being in the spirit, in the spirit. Now, um, before we come to the outline, I would just like to mention uh, a few verses to you. And the first verse is 2 Corinthians 4.16 where Paul says, uh, we do not lose heart. Praise the Lord, we do not lose heart. He said, because even though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Not conference by conference, not week by week, but day by day. So we need to recover the day-by-day Christian life and the day-by-day church life by being renewed with a fresh supply of the resurrection life every day, every day. Uh, you know, uh, Proverbs 4.18, I would like to read this verse to you, read the footnote in the recovery version to you. The footnote is very good. And a lot of us are familiar with this verse. It says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. So our path, our Christian path, shouldn't be like sunset. It should be like the light of dawn. That means we're always fresh with with the Lord. We have the freshness of his presence. And then it says, this path it says, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Our past and the church life should be brighter and brighter. You know, regretfully, um, in Christendom, people get saved and they're very bright when they get saved. But as time goes on, their path grows dimmer and dimmer. And we don't want to be like that in the church life. You know, if the enemy just came and turned the light switch off in our being, we would know this is the enemy. But he, what he does and what his strategy is, is to make us dimmer and dimmer. And the way he does this is like... Uh, you have a, a switch that's a dimmer switch. You can dim the lights. And so he dims the light little by little, day by day in our being, so that we may think we're in the light, but actually it's very dim in our being, dim light. And we don't want that to happen to us. You know, there was a, um, when I got married, I, I got married in a in a small town in western Kansas, a very small town, where my wife's parents were, and uh, I had to go to a judge, to uh, to get my marriage license, whatever it was. I think it was my marriage license, and uh, anyway, we started talking, and we I found out he was a brother, and he and then he found out I was a brother, so we began to fellowship. I forgot I was going to get married. We were just enjoying the Lord, you know. He didn't have the term enjoyment. But we were enjoying the Lord together. And he told me how he got saved. He was a very distinguished man. Uh, uh, He was a judge. But he said that years ago, he was out. he, He was partying. Maybe it was a Friday night or Saturday night. He was a young man. He was partying. You know, uh, even to me, it's um, it's very striking. I don't know if in England you have this restaurant called TGIF, which stands for Thank God It's Friday. Uh, we should have a restaurant called TGIM. Thank God it's Monday, right? But the reason why they say Friday is because Everyone can't wait till Friday uh, to, to you know, to do things they shouldn't be doing. Well, anyway, he, he went out and he was partying. He came back to his apartment and, and um, he turned on the television and he was so wiped out, so exhausted that he just collapsed on the couch. And... Uh, And what was on the television was Billy Graham preaching the gospel. Billy Graham was preaching the gospel and he was too wiped out to turn the television off. He he could, he was frozen on the couch. And so he repented of his sins. He prayed to the Lord. He opened to the Lord and he received the Lord as his life and savior. Isn't that wonderful? And so... um, he became a believer. Uh, that changed his life. He became a judge, a very distinguished man. But then, when Ruth and I would, would visit, uh, would visit her parents in that small uh, Western Kansas town, uh, we would go maybe once a year to go visit them. I noticed that when we would go, Ruth's dad was a pastor, and so we would honor him by going to his denomination, hearing him preach. And the judge that, that fellowship with me, he was there in the congregation. And I really felt bad because he looked very sad. Very sad. And uh, I noticed, and it wasn't his fault, but you could tell his path began in a bright way. But his path became dimmer and dimmer. And thank the Lord we have the church life. Uh, That's why our path grows brighter and brighter. And we trust in the Lord that this weekend our path will be even brighter with a sevenfold intensified spirit. So I really love this brother, but... um, Regretfully, it's it's hard to maintain your brightness outside of the church life. Um, you know, in Deuteronomy thirty four seven, this verse really touched me. It says concerning Moses, it says this. It says Moses was one hundred and twenty years old when he died, and his eye was not dim. And his freshness had not left him. His freshness had not left him. Now, you can apply that in a physical sense in the Old Testament, of course. But in a a spiritual sense, in the New Testament, our eye is our heart, is our heart. Uh, The Lord talks about if your eye is single, your whole body, your whole being will be full of light, full of light so we need to pr- we need to pray and keep our hearts single that our only goal is the lord himself just like in this meeting uh, our only goal is to contact the lord himself and to hear him and see him and gain him and know him and then for our freshness our freshness we should always Maintain the freshness of the Lord's presence with us if we have the Lord's presence if we have his smile we have his freshness we're always fresh we're never uh, in, in uh, one group of life studies I believe it's in the uh, I'm trying to remember the life studies maybe it was in the life study of Samuel because you had Eli there but it talked about the stale, ironic priesthood. The stale, ironic priesthood. We never want to become stale Christians, right? Uh, no one eats stale bread. No one likes stale bread. Remember when I went to Russia the first time, all the bread was stale. Uh, you couldn't. If, if I threw that piece of bread at you, it would knock you out, it hit you in the head. Uh, but anyway. We don't want to be stale believers. We don't want to be stale priests. We want to have the freshness of the Lord's presence. When we have His inner smile, we have His his presence. His smile is His presence. And we always want the freshness of the Lord's presence. The freshness of His presence. We want to walk in newness of life. We want to serve in newness of spirit. We want the freshness of the Lord's presence, in Acts 320, Peter is speaking and he talks about seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Seasons of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Of course, Peter there is referring to the Millennial Kingdom. But we have a foretaste of the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, and and Saints, this weekend, although we only have two days, it should be a season of refreshing. From the presence of the Lord, and so we need, we need to be like Moses. Our freshness not leaving us. Our freshness not leaving us. Now, in this uh, in this first message, uh, we'll be in the first three messages. We will be in the uh, in the books of First and Second Timothy. First three messages. In the last message, we have a special message, which I believe is a very special message. I won't tell you what it is yet, don't look. Uh, Anyway, uh, I I feel it's very special for us to maintain a healthy Christian life and a healthy church life. Now the subject of 1 Timothy is God's economy concerning the church, God's economy concerning the church. Then the subject of 2 Timothy is the inoculation against the decline of the church. The inoculation against the decline of the church. And you know, you get inoculated. You don't get inoculated when you're sick. You get inoculated when you're healthy. Right? I mean, that's normal. Uh, In a normal situation, you get inoculated when you're healthy. You get treated when you're sick. What's well, a healthy situation here in England? And it's a healthy situation in Europe. And so this is the time for us to be inoculated. For us to be inoculated. So we all need inoculation. Now, even though we're not going to touch Titus, Titus speaks about maintaining the order in the church. Maintaining the order in the church. And so. All of these, all of these three epistles are three aspects of one purpose, of one purpose. And that purpose is to preserve the church as the proper expression of the triune God, as symbolized by the golden lampstands in the ultimate portion of the divine revelation. So, three aspects of one purpose— to preserve the church as the proper expression of the triune God as symbolized by the golden lampstands in the ultimate portion of the divine revelation which is the book of revelation, which is the book of revelation. Now, behind me, uh, maybe you can take down these verses later, behind me are in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus the words healthy are used repeatedly. These are the only books where Paul uses the word healthy. And there's healthy teaching. That's the teaching of God's eternal economy. There's healthy teaching. Aren't you glad that we could be under healthy teaching? So thankful for that. You open up the recovery version, you read a life study, you are under healthy teaching. Teaching that's full of the divine life. Then there's healthy words. We want When we speak, we want to speak healthy words to one another. Words that impart life to one another. So you have healthy teaching, healthy words. Then we have health, healthy speech. Healthy speech. And then finally, the fourth item is we need to be healthy in the faith. Healthy in the faith. So we have these four items. Healthy teaching healthy words, healthy speech, and healthy in the faith. Okay, now I'll come to the title of this first message. It's cleaving to the healthy teaching of God's eternal economy and living in the divine dispensing of God in Christ into our being through the exercise of our spirit unto godliness. So we need to be cleaving and living. Cleaving to the healthy teaching of God's eternal economy and living in the divine dispensing of God in Christ into our being. The only way we can do that is through the exercise of our spirit. Saints, in this this weekend, let's give ourselves to exercise our spirit. You know, I always tell the trainees, if you give a, if you share If you share and you feel you're going down in flames, you know what I mean? You're not sharing what you plan on sharing and you're going down in flames. Go down in flames exercising your spirit. If you exercise your spirit, people will get something. People will get Christ. Even though you might not share all the right things. Now I'm not saying we should share wrong things. But the preeminent thing when we speak is to exercise our spirit. Exercise your spirit. Uh, I remember Brother Lee being with Brother Lee one time, actually two times. He told some coworkers, Brother, exercise your spirit. That's really something in front of all the saints. He says, Exercise your spirit. So we need to exercise our spirit, we need to be spiritual men spiritual men. According to 1 Corinthians 3, uh, you have verses 1 and 3, and 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, there are three kinds of men that Paul talks about, Paul talks about. Firstly, there's a, you can be a fleshly man, fleshly man, even a fleshy man, a fleshy man, that's worse than fleshly. That means you live according to the flesh, you move according to the flesh, you're dominated by the flesh. It's possible to be a believer and be a fleshly believer, a fleshly believer. Also, in these verses that I mentioned, there's a soulish man, a soulish man. And a soulish man, of course, his soul dominates his being. The leading part of the soul is the mind. That means when you're a soulish person, you live in the realm of your mind. Now, that doesn't mean we throw our mind away, but we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We need to exercise our spirit so that our spirit spreads to our mind and becomes the spirit of our mind. The spirit of our mind. Now, now Paul also says there's another kind of man, and that's a spiritual man. So uh, the reason why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians is so that the believers in Corinth would aspire to the growth in life that they might become spiritual men, spiritual men. And a spiritual man is someone who's dominated by his spirit, is someone who's governed by his spirit, is someone who's controlled by his spirit, is someone who's moved by his spirit, and is someone who is led by his spirit. We need to be spiritual men in such a way. It's only spiritual, if we're dominated by our spirit, governed by our spirit, led by our spirit, moved by our spirit, and controlled by our spirit, together we will grow in life, and that corporate growth in life will be the building up of the body of Christ. Will be the building up of the body of Christ, will be the preparation of the bride of Christ, and will be the ushering in of the kingdom of the heavens. So uh, we need to to exercise our spirit, give ourselves to exercise our spirit. All right, now let's come to Roman number one. It says the subject of 1 Timothy is God's economy concerning the church. God's economy is his household administration, which is to dispense himself in Christ into his chosen and redeemed people that he may have a house to express himself which house is the church the body of christ now we might have some guests with, with us and um, uh, if you don't know what the word economy means spiritually first timothy 1 3 and 4 paul talks about god's economy i was on a flight to russia in 1993 I was sitting next to this man, and I said, why are you going to Russia? He said, well, the reason why I'm going to Russia in 1993, this was in in January, in the winter. You don't go in January to Russia for a vacation, right? Anyway, the first group of full-timers that went to Russia, they went in the dead of winter, dead of winter. Uh, brotherly asked Dick Taylor and I to go to Russia in January. And after he asked us to go, he said, have a nice vacation. And then he laughed, then he laughed. Anyway, uh, I asked this man, I said, why are you going to Russia? He said, well, the economy collapsed in Russia. And so the, the Russian government wanted me to come and help them with this because I'm an economist. I'm an economist. And then I said to him, I said, have you ever heard of God's economy? He said, God's economy? What is that? I've never heard of that before. So I shared with him what God's economy is. And we'll see as we read through the outline what God's economy is. Of course, the word economy in 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4 is composed of two greek words which is oikos which means house or household and nomos which means law or administration so god's economy is his household administration and in his household administration he wants to dispense himself in christ into his chosen and redeemed people so that he may have a house to express himself Which house is the church as the body of Christ? What does the Lord want to do in this meeting right now? He wants to dispense himself into you. And into me. If we miss his dispensing, that's a tragedy. Uh, Any day without us enjoying him dispensing himself into us is an empty day. An empty day. Every day... We need him to dispense himself into us, and every meeting, we need him to, to dispense himself into us. Now, I come back to 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 3-6. Paul exhorted Timothy. He said, I exhorted you when I was going forth into Macedonia to remain in Ephesus, that you might charge certain ones not to teach different things. Don't teach different things, uh, nor to give heed to myths and unending genealogies, which produce questionings, rather than God's economy, which is in faith. In other words, what Paul was saying is, uh, you know, I want you to remain in emphasis because some people there are teaching different things other than the teaching of God's economy. God's economy is the unique teaching in the Bible. The unique teaching in the Bible. And so we can teach this from many angles, many angles, many aspects. But the ultimate goal of God's economy is for Him to dispense Himself into our being. God's dispensing is for God's economy. God carries out His economy by God dispensing Himself. Into our being. Then in verse 6, Paul says something uh, that is very wonderful to me. He says, but the end of the charge, the end of the charge. Now the charge there is the charge to, not to teach different things, but to teach God's economy. He says the end of the charge. The end there is the purpose of the charge the objective of the charge, the result of the charge. So he says the end of the charge is, lo- is love, is love. i just stop right there. When we are under the teaching of God's economy, we are infused with God as love. We're infused with him as love to love the Lord Jesus, to love the church, and to love the brothers and sisters. So the end of the charge of God's economy is love out of, a, out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and out of unfeigned faith. Saints, we can testify that when we came into the church life, and by the Lord's mercy we got under the teaching of God's economy, uh, we began to love the Lord Jesus. I remember this, this uh, before I came into the church life, this this brother, he had met one of the brothers in the church in Houston on a bus, and he went to a meeting of the church in Houston, and so uh, he went to that meeting. Then he and I kind of met in a free group. And about a year after he went to that meeting, he said to me, "He said Ed, let's go to a meeting of the church in Houston." I said, "The church in Houston? What is that? You know." I always, you know, you, you have concepts, denominational concepts, but in the Bible, there's just a church, right? There's no denominations in the Bible. There's just one church. There's one body of Christ. And that one body of Christ is expressed in localities, in different localities, as local churches. It's very simple, very, very simple. So if you're in London, you meet as the church in London. That's not a name. That's a description of who you are. If you're in New York City, you meet as the church in New York City. And the church includes all the believers, all the believers, right? Uh, Actually, the church in London includes all the believers in London. It's just that they don't know that. They don't realize that. But we stand as one with all the believers. And so the reason why we take the ground of the church is because we choose to love all the brothers. And Watchman Dean said this, I like this. He said, you may choose to love all the brothers, but don't think that all the brothers will love you. And so when we take this ground, lots of times we're misunderstood uh, you know people just you know they're used to uh, having a name having a name like the Baptist church there's no such thing as a Baptist church in, in the Bible we love all the believers no matter where they meet uh, but John the Baptist was not a Southern Baptist he was not a Southern Baptist he was a baptizer he was a baptizer so um, anyway, uh, so you have the church, the church, and uh, you know, brother. They used the example uh, of a, of the moon. You know, there's only one moon. When you're in London, it's the moon in London. When you're in New York City, it's the moon in New York City. When you're in Los Angeles, it's the same moon but it appears and it's manifested in Los Angeles. That's like the one church manifested in different cities, in different cities. I remember going to France one time and sharing this, and of course I don't know French, but this one uh, lady in the audience, when I shared this, she was looking at me intently, and she went, Magnifique! Anyway, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. She said magnifique, which, you know, to me, that was magnificent. And it is magnificent. It is magnificent. So God's economy puts into us a love for the Lord, a love for the church, a love for all the brothers. Uh, That is God's love, God's love. And this brother told me, he said, Ed, these... Brothers and sisters in the church in Houston, they will stand up and say, "Lord Jesus, I love you." And I just, I just never heard of anything like that. Lord Jesus, I love you. I said, "Really, George?" You know, George is in the church in Houston now. This brother. Um, he said, "Yeah." He says they don't make, they, they don't have any qualms about saying out loud, "Lord Jesus, I love you." And so when we came into the church life, we we became the Lord Jesus, I love you people. We should say, Lord Jesus, I love you repeatedly. Repeatedly. He's our bridegroom. He's our husband. Right? So we should tell him that we love him. We should tell him that we love him to maintain our romantic relationship with him. So the end of the charge to teach God's economy is love out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and out of unfeigned faith. Um, Brothers and sisters, I I hope today, this morning, you at least said, Lord Jesus, I love you one time. Anyway, don't be condemned if you didn't. But start tomorrow. Start tomorrow. When you wake up, when you look in the mirror and it looks bad, say, Lord Jesus, I still love you, Lord. I still love you. And you'll start your day uh, in, a, in a new, fresh, different way. Now, A says, under, under uh, Romans 1, A says, God's eternal economy, which is God's plan, Is his will and goal. God's dispensing, God's distributing is the process and means whereby he accomplishes his economy. For this reason, God's dispensing is for God's economy, is for God's economy. Now, the base of the word for economy, the base of the Greek word for economy, which is oikonomia, is the same origin as that for the word pasture, P-A-S-T-U-R-E, in John 10, 9. This implies a distribution of pasture to the flock. So what the Lord is doing in this meeting is he's distributing himself as pasture to us. He's the green pasture, right? Uh, In Psalm 23, he says, I will make them lie down. In green pastures. I will lead them beside waters of rest. So the green pastures of are Christ. Uh, The waters of rest are the Spirit. And we can lie down in Christ. We can eat, we can eat and feast on Him as the green pastures. It's not brown pastures. It's green pastures. That means He's fresh, He's ever fresh. And he leads us beside waters of rest. Now, saints, uh, I believe in Genesis 48, 15. You know, I'm talking about the Lord shepherding here. He he, uh, leads us, makes us lie down in green pastures. We can pray this in the morning after we get up. Make me lie down in green pastures. Now, don't lie down physically (laughs) after you get up, right? But uh, he makes you lie down inwardly uh, in, in himself as green pastures. In Genesis 48, 15, Jacob said, Jacob referred to God as the God who has shepherded me all my life to this day. And I think we can testify, those of us in this room, that by the Lord's mercy, the Lord has shepherded us all our life to this very day, to this very day. Now, B says Christ is a center, circumference, element, sphere, means, goal, and aim of God's economy. In fact, all the contents of God's eternal economy are simply Christ. You know, of course, uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, The Lord took Peter, James, and John with him up to the mount. And um, on that that mount, he was speaking with Moses and Elijah. Can you imagine that? And and the disciples were looking at him conversing with Moses and Elijah. And Peter, it says they they were frightened. They were frightened. And Peter, I like Peter because Peter made a lot of mistakes. And the Lord adjusted him, corrected him, uh, perfected him. We all make a lot of mistakes, right? No, Peter made a lot of mistakes. So this is one mistake he made. He said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles or three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And when Peter said that, it said a bright cloud overshadowed them, overshadowed them. And, um, and a voice came out of the cloud. And the voice out of the cloud said, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I have found my delight. Hear him. Hear him. Saints, every day we want to hear him. and We came to this conference to hear him. Right To hear him and hear him alone. He's the real Moses. He's the law of the spirit of life. He's the real Elijah. He's the real prophet that was sent to us to speak God into us. So um, we need to hear him. Then it says, when the cloud dissipated, they looked up. This is in Mark 9, 9 8. It says, they saw no one except Jesus only. So I like these two uh, phrases. Hear Him and Jesus only. Jesus only. What do you get when you come into the recovery? You don't get a position. You don't get a name. You get Jesus only. We came to this meeting to gain Jesus only. And we came to this meeting to hear Him. To hear Him only. Uh, When the Lord appeared to the disciples in resurrection, he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me must be fulfilled. That means the entire Old Testament has Christ as its centrality and universality. That's, That's just amazing. And I think in our crystallization studies, uh, we've been able to see Christ everywhere, right? Even in the Book of Numbers. When we came to the Book of Numbers, I said, "What are we going to say?" Uh, but we found some gems, some diamonds in the Book of Numbers. Then we're going to have a second training on the Book of Numbers. So I said, "What are we going to say in a second training?" But we found some more jewels in the Book of Numbers. So. We'll have a second training on the book of Numbers. Now C says this, unless we know God's economy, we will not understand the Bible. The central subject of the Bible is the economy of God, and the entire Bible is concerned with the economy of God. You know, I've got Job 10.13 and Ephesians 3.9 here. Now, the book of Job is a mystery to people. It's a mystery to philosophers. It's a mystery to Christian teachers. Uh, Of course, Job suffered a lot. He went through a lot of trials. And so uh, the book of Job essentially poses a question, uh, and the question is, why? Why? Uh, Why did this happen to Job? Uh, It says Job was a good man, he was a perfect man, he was an ethical man. Uh, But why did this happen to him? Why did this happen to him? And so, uh, also in Job, you have a question concerning the meaning of life, the purpose of life. When I was in college, I I, I went to a secular college. I didn't go to a Bible school. I took a course in Old Testament studies and uh, my wife took that course with me. She began with me, but because she was in nursing school, the course was so difficult and she had so much on her plate from nursing school. She says, I'm dropping this course. I'm out of here. And so I stayed because I wanted to know about the Old Testament. Well, the final exam was on the book of Job. It was an essay exam. And I wrote that essay, and I got an A on that essay i didn 't know what I was talking about. I was an unbeliever, and I got an a and if if you put that in front of me today, I would give it an f minus an f minus It was terrible, just terrible now it 's amazing to me that in the ministry in the entire book of job um uh, Of course, Job begins with the disasters that befell him and his three friends came to him and his three friends, when they came to him at first, they didn't say anything. That was the best thing they did in the book of Job. The best thing they did. You know, sometimes people go through things. Sometimes the best way to shepherd them is just to be with them. That doesn't mean you don't say anything. But, when you're with them, that, that shepherds them, that shepherds them. So they were with Job, but then they began to open their mouths. And when they open their mouths, they're full of opinions. I would say those three men and Job were an unvital group. If you want to see an unvital group, just look at the book of Job. They, can you imagine, Job was going through all these sufferings. They called Job an empty-headed man. Now, is that cherishing and nourishing? An empty-headed man. And then Job called them. He said, you are useless physicians. You are useless physicians. You are pastors of lies, of lies. And so they were going back and forth, expressing their opinion. But in Job 10.13, Job 10.13 is the key to understanding the book of Job, understanding the book of Job. And I'm amazed that the ministry extracted this verse and showed it to us. Uh, it is remarkable. Anyway, I remember in the Job training, uh, Brother he was going through the book of Job, and he had me stand up and read large portions of the book of Job, just so that we could have, we could hear the book of Job, you know. And, but but he would highlight the crucial portions and Job 10:13 is the most crucial portion because Job says this said this I'm expounding this now he said lord i know i know that there's something i know that there's something that you have in your heart for me but i don't know what it is so job 10:13 says you have hidden these things in your heart. I know that this is with you. So Job realized that something was hidden in God's heart for him, that it was with God, but he didn't know what it was. But Ephesians 3.9 tells us what it was. Ephesians 3.9 says, Paul says, to enlighten all that they might see what the economy of the mystery is, which throughout the ages has been hidden in God who created all things now what is hidden in God for each one of us Uh, all of us have situations we go through we go through trials we go through situations we all have our situation am I right we do right and sometimes we ask why well uh, the reason why is God's economy God's economy is the answer to every question. Uh, what's hidden in God's heart for each one of us is God's economy. When you're going through something, you don't pray doctrinal prayers. You know, you don't... If you're going over Niagara Falls, you know, in, in the United States, there's Niagara Falls, you wouldn't pray a doctrinal prayer, Right? You wouldn't say, oh, Father, I thank Thee for these falls. I thank Thee for this wonderful day. You would say, oh, God, save me. Right? You would say, you would be very real with the Lord. And the more real we are with the Lord, the more real He becomes to us. So what God wants to do in the things that we pass through, in all the things that we pass through, He wants to dispense Himself into us more and more. Lots of times there's no room in us for God to dispense himself into us. So he takes us through things so that we will really open to him and then he has the ground to dispense himself into our being. Now, um, I, I wrote some things down here about, about Job. That God's intention with Job was that a good man would become a God-man. A good man would become a God-man. You have to take the good and take an O out of it. And then that makes God-man. Uh, to be a God-man is very scriptural and very logical, right? Brother, what is your name? David. David. That's a wonderful name. David, can you come up here for a second? See, this is the way. I just demonstrate it very simply. Uh Here's David. Now, David, God dwells in you, right? Yes. yes, right? And you're a man. Yeah. So what does that make you? God-man. Thank you, brother. <laughs> it's that simple. It's that simple. God dwells in us. We're a man. We're a God-man. So God's intention was that Job would become a God-man, expressing God and his attributes. Job was a good man. But God doesn't want a good man He wants a God-man. So God's intention with Job was to tear down the natural Job in his perfection and uprightness that he might build up a renewed Job in God's nature and attributes. God's intention was to make Job a man of God, filled with Christ, the embodiment of God, to be the fullness of God for the expression of God in Christ. Now, eventually, at the end of the book of Job, God appeared to Job. He appeared to Job. And Job saw God. And Job said, in, uh, at the end of the book of Job, he said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, I've heard a lot about you. Uh, we can have a lot of doctrinal knowledge, you know. Uh, we can know terminology, even the terminology of the Lord's recovery. Uh, but, but a lot of that can be mere doctrine to us, mere theory to us. So Job said, I, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. It's a big difference. My eye sees you, therefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So when Job saw God, to see God, for him to see God was to gain God in his personal experience seeing God equals gaining God equals gaining God so in all God's dealing with Job, Job was not an enemy of God sometimes the the devil would come to us and say God is out to get you, well God is not out to get get you God is out to dispense himself into you Satan's the one that's out to get us right? So in all God's dealing with Job, God's intention was to reduce Job to nothing, yet to maintain his existence so that he might have time to dispense himself into Job. God cares for only one thing, for being dispensed into our being. So seeing God equals gaining God to be transformed by God. To gain God is to receive God In his element, his life, and his nature. Now, in order to see God, we must exercise our spirit. That's the only way we can see God. You have to exercise your spirit, right? Because God is spirit. And so, and God, He's the invisible God. And so here we are on a Saturday, and this room is full of brothers and sisters. This is very inspiring. On a Saturday, Saturday morning, holiday, right? And uh, and if we're going to see God this weekend, we must exercise our spirit. Only our spirit can substantiate spirit, can make uh, God's essence and nature real to us, real to us. So we need to exercise our spirit. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, Our spirit is a spirit of faith. Our mingled spirit is a spirit of faith. So when we exercise our spirit, we are exercising our faith. Faith is in our spirit. Doubts are in our mind. So we need to exercise our spirit of faith. It's like a sixth sense, a sixth sense. Now, I need some of you to help me, maybe because of jet lag, but there's five senses. There's hearing, right? Right? There's seeing, there's smelling, there's tasting, and there's touching. I did it. Praise the Lord. <laughs> well, if you exercise your spirit of faith, you can hear God. You can actually hear God. If you exercise your spirit of faith, you can smell God. You might say, oh, Ed, that's too much. But in 2 Corinthians 2... It says that when we are permeated with Christ, we become a fragrance of Christ to God. Fragrance of Christ to God. Then we can, if we exercise our spirit of faith, we can taste God. Of course, there's a verse in Psalms and in Peter that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Of course, we exercise our spirit, we can see God, we can taste God, we can touch God. God is very real to us when we exercise our spirit of faith. So we can hear God, we can see God, we can smell God, we can hear God, see God, smell God, taste God, and touch God. It's very wonderful. So the more that we look at him in our spirit, the more we receive all of his ingredients into our being as our inner supply. This is wonderful. Now we come to D. D says God's economy is to dispense himself into our being so that our being may be constituted with his being. This can be accomplished only by God dispensing himself into us as the divine life. So, Romans 8, of course, I'll skip down to Romans 8. Romans 8 talks about the law, the spirit of life. The law there is an automatic principle, an automatic principle, uh, an innate capacity. And so when we're in the spirit, it's like the law of gravity. If you know that I drop this handkerchief, if, if I let go of it, the law of gravity takes over. Well, the law of the spirit of life, when we exercise our spirit, it works to dispense the triune God into our being automatically, spontaneously, And unconsciously unconsciously uh, you know I'm digesting my breakfast right now but that's unconscious if I was if I was conscious of it there's something wrong there's something wrong with my stomach right oh that means something's wrong but because I'm unconscious of it that means I'm healthy I'm healthy so the law of the spirit of life is an automatic principle And in any capacity, it's spontaneous and it's unconscious, unconscious. We just need to flip the switch of this law by exercising our spirit. Now, in Romans 8.10, it says our spirit is life. And the word life there is zoe, Z-O-E, which refers to the divine life, the eternal life, the uncreated life of God. So no matter how we feel this morning, at least one-third of our being is life. One-third of our being is Zoe. That's why we need to exercise our spirit. Then Romans 8, 6 says, the mind set on the spirit is life, is life and peace. I'll just say is life for for the purposes of this point. Uh, We need to set our mind on our spirit. That means, to set our mind on our spirit means we pay attention to our spirit. Pay attention to your spirit. Use your spirit. Uh, then your mind becomes life. Then in Romans eight eleven, it says, If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from among the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. And we know that when we're raptured, uh, the Lord will give Zoe to our mortal bodies, we will be transfigured. But we have a foretaste of this today. Sometimes we come to a meeting, and we're like, uh, we're like Joseph. Remember Joseph, when he, was, when he was going to be with the Lord, um, he said, Take my bones into the good land. And sometimes we have the feeling, Take my bones to the meeting. Just get my bones into the chair, and I have a chance. I have a chance. Well, sometimes we come to the meeting, and we may feel down. We may feel out out of it. We may feel weak. We may feel tired. Uh, But as the meeting goes on, the Lord gives Zoe to our mortal body. So we come in like this. We go out like this. We go out like this. We come in without a smile on our face, we go out with a smile on our face. And we're not faking it because we got Zoe to our mortal body. Now, he says the leadership in the New Testament ministry is the leadership of the controlling God-given revelation of God's economy. So Paul told King Agrippa in Acts twenty-six nineteen. He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Which means the heavenly vision of God's eternal economy was what controlled him, was what governed him. That was his leadership. That was his leadership was the controlling, controlling God-given revelation of God's economy. Saints, we don't take this way of the Lord's recovery because of any person. And we shouldn't leave this way because of any person, because we are controlled by the vision and revelation of God's eternal economy. Of God's eternal economy. That's why we're all still here. There was a saying in Chinese. I'm looking for a Chinese brother here. Maybe Jameson knows how to say this in Chinese. I'm interpreting it. Uh, it says, it said this when the tree falls, The monkey scatters. The monkeys scatter, right? James said, do you know that in Chinese? You don't know it. Okay. Well anyway. (laughs) Well, that's a translation from the Chinese. I don't know how to I don't know Chinese, so just when the tree falls, the monkeys scatter. And a lot of people thought, well, when Brother Lee goes to be with the Lord, what are you gonna do now? You're gonna be scattered. When the tree falls, the monkeys scatter. The tree was, Brother Lee, you're the monkeys. You're all going to scatter. Well, the tree fell, and the monkeys are still here. We're not monkeys, of course. We're God men, right? The God men are still here. Why are we still here? Because we're controlled by the God-given revelation of God's economy. That's what controls us. So, in F says, in a darkened and confused situation, we must cleave to the enlightening and ordering word in the New Testament, the healthy teaching of God's economy, which concerns God's dispensing of himself and his divine Trinity into his chosen people, so that they may be constituted into the body of Christ for the manifestation of the triune God. Now, under F, One says, healthy implies the matter of life. The sound teaching of the apostles, the teaching of God's economy, ministers the supply of life to people, either nourishing them or healing them. In contrast, the different teachings of the dissenting ones sow the seeds of death and poison into others. Two says, any teaching that distracts people from the center and goal of God's eternal economy is not healthy. Different teachings other than God's economy separate us Separate us from the genuine appreciation, love, and enjoyment of the precious person of the Lord Jesus Christ as our life and everything. Of course, in 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3, Paul said, I'm jealous over you with a jealousy of God. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul's ministry was to betroth us to Christ. When you were under Paul's ministry, you were under the teaching of God's economy, and that stirred you up to love the Lord. That's why we say, Lord Jesus, I love you. Because this ministry, the teaching of God's economy, stirs us up to love the Lord. And I would just ask you this question. You don't have to answer, but how is your romance with the Lord doing? Are you romantic with the Lord? That includes the brothers, because we're the bride of Christ, right? Uh, So, uh, in that sense, we're we're all females, in that sense. So how is our romance with the Lord? This is why we should say, Lord Jesus, I love you. We should be romantic with him. Song of Songs is a romantic book. Ecclesiastes is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And that means vapor of vapors, futility of futilities, emptiness of emptinesses. But then when you come to the next book, it says the Song of Songs, which means that's a book of the meaning of your human human life. The meaning of your human life is realized by loving the Lord Jesus, by having personal and intimate contact with him. So we need to have that kind of romance with the Lord. Eventually, by that kind of romance, we will grow in life, and we will become his bride in full to bring him back, to bring him back. Now, uh, let's see. I'm on three, right? Am I on three? Okay, three says the different teaching of the dissenting ones caused envy and discord among the believers, which are contrary to love, the end, the objective, and purpose of the apostles' charge to remain in the teaching of God's economy. Then four says the basic factor of the decline and apostasy of the church is the turning away from Paul's ministry centered on the economy of God. Now, Apostasy means falling away from the straight way of God's economy. So in 2 Timothy 1 15 through 17, Paul said, All those who are in Asia turned away from me. Now, that doesn't actually mean they turned away from his person. It means they turned away from his ministry centered on the economy of God. Now, this included the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus. Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. He spent three years in Ephesus. He taught publicly. He taught from house to house. He admonished each one of the saints with tears. So you've got the church in Ephesus there, um, which was in Asia, which which generally speaking had turned away from his ministry. If you you take about 30 years later, approximately 30 years later, you have Revelation 2 and 3, which are the seven epistles to the churches in Asia, the major churches in Asia. The first church that the Lord addresses through the Apostle John is the church in Asia, is the church in Ephesus, sorry. And he says, I have one thing against you. You have left your first love. You have left your first love. And so when we leave the teaching of God's economy, we leave our first love because this teaching, This ministry is a betrothing ministry. It betrothes us to Christ. So because they left the ministry of God's economy, they left their first love. And to have Christ as our first love, um, you know, many people think the first love is the love you had for the Lord when you first got saved, maybe when you first came into the church life. And we wouldn't say that that's wrong But the real definition of the first love is that we give him the first place in all things. We give him the preeminence in all things, making him everything in our life. So we need to give him the preeminence in all things. And he says, Remember therefore where you have fallen from and repent and do the first works. And do the first works. Then the Lord said this. He said... He said if you don't repent I will remove your lampstand out of its place. That's very serious. That means they would be meeting as a church in Ephesus, but they would not have the reality of the triune God in their locality. That would be terrible. The first works are works that issue from the first love. This is why we're here this morning is because we're doing the first works this morning. And we're here because the Lord is our first love, is our first love. You know, when I think of the first works and the first love, I remember when we were building the meeting hall in Irving and I came home from work, I was very tired. Of course, all of us us volunteered, many volunteers to build that meeting hall. There were a group of brothers who knew what they were doing Then there was a larger group of others who didn't know what they were doing. And we just listened to the brothers who knew what they were doing. I still remember Joe and I were together one time. And we... (laughs) The brothers would just tell Joe and I where to dump the concrete. So we just dump it here. And uh, we laid the first floor of that that meeting hall. And... uh, It was really something because when we laid that cement on that first floor, we did it all night, all night. And by the time we got to the end, the cement had dried on the other end. So we got to the end, and we had breakfast on the dry end. It was really wonderful. And uh, there was this brother who had been there all day. He had been there all night. And uh, Brother Ray Gravers said to the brother, he said, Brother, you need to go home and rest. This brother said, Oh, Brother Ray, please don't make me go home. Please don't make me go home. I did not know that you could experience the baptism in the spirit laying concrete. It's because we were in one accord. We had the one accord. No one had any opinion about anything. And... uh, That was the first works that issued from our first love. Anyway, I came home from work one day, and I was very exhausted. And um, the Lord was prompting me to go over to the meeting hall to help. And so finally the Lord defeated me, and I went over to the meeting hall. And I laid a floor in the kitchen area, you know, a vinyl floor. And I don't know if it's still there. One time I went back and looked at it. And if you look at that floor, there are mistakes in it. There are mistakes. But those mistakes were made out of my first love for the Lord. Out of my first love for the Lord. You know, when the brothers built a house for Brother Lee, his soap dish was slanted. So when he put the soap on the soap dish, the soap would slide off. So he said, don't change that soap dish. Because the brothers made that out of their love for me. And the Lord, through the brothers, made that out of his love for me. So every time he put the soap on there, it slid off. It reminded him, the Lord loves me and the brothers love me. This is the first works. Then you look in Revelation 2 and 3. You have different teachings there. You have the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the teaching of Jezebel. All these different teachings came in. Because they left the ministry of the Apostle Paul, uh, which focused on the teaching of God's economy. Now, Jesus, says, in order to be preserved in the Lord's recovery, we must guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who is indwelling us. One says, according to verse 13, the deposit must refer to the deposit of the healthy words of God's economy, including the riches of life in the Lord's words which he has stored in us. Then I like this next statement. We have to deposit the Lord's healthy words into our being like we deposit money in a bank. Two says to hold a pattern of healthy words means to live by the healthy words, being nourished with the words of the full gospel concerning God's eternal economy, and the sweet words that contain and convey the riches of Christ. Three says, the Holy Spirit dwells in our spirit. Hence, for us to guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit requires that we exercise our spirit. 1 Timothy 4 7, before that, it says, bodily exercise profits a little, but, but godliness is profitable for all things. And then Paul says, exercise yourself unto godliness. That's the exercise of our spirit unto the manifestation or expression of God in the flesh. So we have to exercise our spirit unto godliness. For says, if we are persons acting, behaving, and having our life in the spirit through the exercise of our spirit, all that has been deposited in our being will be guarded through the Holy Spirit who is indwelling us. Roman numeral two says, the subject of 2 Timothy is the inoculation of, against the decline of the church. The key to receiving and dispensing this inoculation is the exercise of our spirit unto godliness, unto godliness. In 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, Paul reminded Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which was in him, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now what is the gift of God in this verse? You have to come to the next verse, verse, six, or verse 7. It says, for God has not given us. What follows is the gift of God. You see this? Uh, Fan in the flame the gift of God which is in you. For God has not given us. Has not given us what? He has not given us a spirit of cowardice. He has given us a spirit of, of power and of love and of sober-mindedness. A spirit of power relates to our will. A spirit of of love relates to our emotion. A spirit of sober-mindedness relates to our mind. Now, A says, Godliness, a living that is the expression of God, is the issue of the divine dispensing for the divine economy. And this dispensing depends on the exercise of our spirit to live Christ in our daily life for the corporate manifestation of God in the church life, in the church life. You know, one uh, time I went to one locality and a group of elders came to me and they said, Ed, uh, this one, this one saint uh, came to us and said, I've tried everything, everything you told me to do. I did. I read all the books. I came to all the meetings. I did what you told me to do, but Nothing works. Nothing works. And so they asked me, what would you say to this person? They didn't know what to say. And I said, brothers, if, if we don't exercise our spirit, nothing works. Nothing works if we don't exercise our spirit. We must exercise our spirit. Then everything works. Exercising our spirit is the key to God's economy. If you don't exercise your spirit, it's just like David, what's the best car?" in England, that I could give you. The top car. Rolls Royce. Okay. You don't have to be that spiritual David, for this one. Okay. Okay, Rolls Royce. (laughs) Let's say that I gave you a Rolls Royce. You said, oh, wow, Brother Ed gave me a Rolls Royce. And I opened the doors for you, but I kept the key. You don't have the key. But you can go in there. You can make your home in there. You can sleep in there, but you cannot drive the car without the key, without the key, right? So, uh, the Rolls Royce of God's eternal economy, the key to God's eternal economy is the exercise of our spirit. Then everything in God's economy works. Now, B says in the blueprint of God's original intention, man is the center of the entire universe And the center of man is his spirit. So Zechariah 12, 1 says, Jehovah stretched forth the heavens, he laid the foundation of the earth, and he formed the spirit of man within him. So 1 says, the heavens are for the earth, the earth is for man, and man was created by God with a spirit so that he may contact God, receive God, contain God, worship God, live God, fulfill God's purpose for God, express God, and be one with God. Two says, without God being the spirit, and without our having a spirit to contact God, to be one with God, the whole universe is empty, and we are nothing. And we are nothing. Proverbs 20, 20, 20 27 says, the spirit of man is, is the lamp of Jehovah searching all the innermost parts of the inner being, and that word for spirit there is the Hebrew word Neshema, which is the same word in Genesis two seven for breath, where it says God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. It's the neshama of life, which shows that what God breathed into man was man's human spirit. Was man's human spirit now? Um, I've got Second Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen here, and I'll just mention verse eighteen. It says, "We do not regard the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen, because the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. Are eternal. So, the Lord's recovery is to recover us from things seen." to things unseen, things unseen. Three says, due to the fall, men have not, have not only overlooked and neglected the human spirit, but also have, been, have even refused to admit that man has a human spirit. And 1 Thessalonians 5.23 is very clear about this. It uses the term spirit and soul and body. It has and in between there. Which shows man has three parts. He has a spirit, and he has a soul, and he has a body. Now, Jude 19 talks about it says, These people are those who make divisions, soulish, having no spirit. Now, the worst thing someone can say about you is that you have no spirit. Now, what does this mean, having no spirit? This means that these people, they didn't cease to possess a spirit as a part of their tripartite being, but they didn't use their spirit. They didn't care for their spirit. They neglected their spirit, so it was as if they had no spirit, having no spirit. And because they neglected their spirit, they didn't use their spirit, they made divisions among the saints. And Jude 19 goes to verse 20 and 21, It says, but you, beloved, don't be like them. Don't be like these ones who don't use their spirit. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up upon your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, awaiting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So the entire triune God is mentioned there. It says, praying in the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God. That's the Father awaiting the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ That's God the Son unto eternal life. The totality of eternal life is the new Jerusalem. So when we exercise our spirit, we enjoy the triune God, and we become the totality of the eternal life, which is the new Jerusalem. Force says, man as a vessel through the exercise of his spirit was to receive God in Christ as the tree of life so that life as a river would flow in and out of his innermost being for his transformation into precious materials for God's building, God's eternal expression. You can see this clearly in Genesis 2, 7-12, and verse 22. Now A says, The breath of God has become our human spirit, and our spirit is God's lamp, to contain God as the oil and give us light. B says, man's spirit became a broken lamp through his fall. But through God's recovery in his salvation, man's spirit is regenerated, rebuilt, and reinforced. Our spirit has been reinforced with a vivifying sevenfold intensified spirit. C says the central government and most prominent part of man's being should be his spirit. A man who is ruled and controlled by his spirit is a spiritual man, is a spiritual man. You know, in the book of Daniel, I like the book of Daniel because even even the ones around Daniel who weren't for God, who didn't know God, they testified This man has an excellent spirit, has an excellent spirit. And the reason why he had an excellent spirit was because he was a man of prayer. The best way to exercise our spirit is to pray, is to pray. To pray is the real denial of the self. And to pray is the real exercise of the spirit. Sometimes to exercise our spirit and to deny the self we can pray a simple prayer by just calling on the name of the Lord, telling the Lord we love Him. Now, five says the building of God in a man is typified by both the tabernacle and the breastplate, and the key to God's building is our mingled spirit. A says the uniting bars of the boards of the tabernacle, made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, signify the mingled spirit. The divine spirit mingled with the human spirit to become the uniting bond of peace. Now, B says, the New Testament, in the New Testament, the reality of the Urim and Thummim put into the breastplate is the mingled spirit, the unveiling spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling our receiving spirit, our regenerated human spirit. Now, the word Urim. In Hebrew, means illuminators, illuminators. The word Thummim in Hebrew means perfectors. And what that means in the breastplate, the Urim was added to the breastplate, and all the stones were lit up, were lit up. Then the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were on those 12 stones. And if you counted the Hebrew letters of the alphabet, there were only 18 letters of the Hebrew alphabet represented. Four letters short. The Thummim made up those four letters. That's why it's called perfectors, perfectors. So, uh, without getting into the... You could have a whole message on the Urim and the Thummim. Without getting into that, uh, the, uh, the high priest, he got messages from God through the breastplate with the urim and the thummim through the illuminators and perfectors on the breastplate. Okay, now we come to number six. Six says the divine spirit dwelling in our human spirit and the two mingled together as one spirit, the mingled spirit are are the strategic and central point of God's economy which is in faith? Of course, John three six says that which is born of the Spirit is our Spirit, is our mingled Spirit. You know, um, I I was amazed when I met the brothers. They show me John three six, John twenty four, and Romans eight sixteen, which shows the divine Spirit and the human Spirit. Uh, God. We're, we're born of the spirit, that which is born of the spirit, capital S is small as spirit. And the spirit himself, capital S witnesses with our spirit, lowercase S that we are the children of God. And John 4:24, God is spirit, capital S, and those who worship Him must worship Him in the spirit. lowercase S. I never noticed that before. I was brand new. I said, who are these people? This brother's a mechanic. How does he know this? Where does he get this from? He didn't go to seminary or anything, but he's shown me the divine spirit and the human spirit. It's Wonderful. Now, A says, the great way to fulfill God's economy is for us to live and do everything according to the spirit by exercising our spirit. B says, whenever we turn to our spirit, And exercise our spirit, we touch the body because the body is in our spirit. So if we want to touch the body, if we want to be burdened for the body, we must exercise our spirit. In every chapter of the book of Ephesians, our spirit is mentioned. And In Ephesians 1.17, you have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In chapter 2.22... You have a dwelling place of God in spirit. In chapter three, verse five, it says that uh, the church, as the body of Christ, was revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in spirit. In Ephesians three sixteen, we are strengthened through God's spirit into the inner man, which is our spirit with God's life as our life. Ephesians 4.23 says we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Ephesians 5.18 says be filled in spirit. Ephesians 6.18 says pray at every time in spirit. So Ephesians talks about the church as the body of Christ. You cannot touch the body unless you exercise your spirit because the body is in our spirit. C says the word exercise implies forcing. If we Christians want to be strong and want to grow in the Lord, we must force ourselves to use our spirit until we build up a strong habit of exercising our spirit. D says to exercise our spirit is to fan our spirit into flame. Fan our spirit into flame. So it says, fan in the flame the gift of God, and the gift of God is our spirit. Uh, So one says, fire is in our regenerated spirit, which is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Actually, our spirit is the fire. Our spirit is the fire. If you want to be on fire for the Lord, you have to exercise your spirit. Our spirit is the fire. Who says we save ones have the capital to live the Christian life and the church life, and the capital is our God-given spirit. E says to exercise our spirit, we must deal with the parts of our hearts surrounding our spirit, our mind, emotion, will, and conscience. One says a spirit of power is a spirit with a subdued and resurrected will. A spirit of love is a spirit with an emotion filled with God as love and a spirit of sober-mindedness is a spirit with a renewed mind. Two says to exercise our spirit is to exercise ourselves to have a good conscience without offense toward God and men and to have a pure conscience which means to have a pure heart of seeking only God and his will. You know, our spirit has three functions according to the Bible. Ah. First, you have the conscience, uh, which is a part of our spirit. Uh, And then you have the intuition, which gives us a direct sense of God, which brings us under the direct rule of God. And then you have the function of fellowship, where we enjoy communication with God. We enjoy the flowing of God within us. Well, our conscience should not be governed as, as Christians and as believers, if we're going to be healthy, our conscience should not merely be governed by right and wrong. Our conscience should be governed by whether we have God's presence or not. Whether we have God or not. Do you sense God? Was God in what you were doing? If God's presence wasn't with you when you were doing something, then you have to confess that to have a clear conscience. You see this? So, uh, we need to have a good conscience and a pure conscience by, you know, that to exercise our spirit is to exercise ourselves to have a good conscience and a pure conscience. The way we do that is to exercise our intuition to be ruled by God, to come under the direct sense of God, and to live according to that direct sense of God. If God isn't in what we're doing, if we don't have his presence, then we should confess that. Lord, forgive me. I didn't have your presence in that thing. Now, F says, to exercise our spirit by rejoicing always, praying unceasingly, and giving thanks in everything to enjoy the indwelling spirit is the secret of doing all things in Christ. G says to exercise our spirit is to discern our spirit from our soul. Discern our spirit from our soul. One says, it says we should always be on the alert to discern and deny anything that is not of the spirit, but of the soul, the self. And two says, whatever we are, whatever we have, and whatever we do must be in spirit, Everything that God is to us is in our spirit, is in our spirit. Saints, we should always be on the alert to discern and deny anything that is not of the spirit, but of the soul, the self. This is why in Ephesians 5.14, it says, awake sleeper. And I'm not looking around to see you sleeping, but it says awake sleeper and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, I told the brothers uh, a few weeks ago that to sleep is not just to sleep physically. We can sleep psychologically, and we can sleep spiritually. Uh, When we sleep psychologically, it means our attention is absent. When When we sleep spiritually, it means our perception is dormant. And I was telling the brothers... I had a class in the training, and there was a trainee who, uh, of course, you have the ground with the trainees. You, could, you shouldn't do this in a church meeting, but or in a ministry meeting. But uh, he was looking at me while I was sharing, and it looked real intent, like this. But I knew that he was not there. He just looking at me, and I said. I I was very burdened. I had three points I wanted to share with the trainees. So I said, brother, what did I just share? He said, I was daydreaming, brother Ed. I was daydreaming. He confessed. Praise the Lord. He said, I was daydreaming. I said, okay. His attention was absent. And so he wasn't vigilant, you see, to deny him everything that is not of the spirit but of the soul itself. And um, so I repeated the three items. I said, Brother, I'm going to repeat these three items. I want you to pay attention, exercise your spirit. And next week, I'm going to come back, I'm going to ask you what those three items are. So he had them. He got them into him because he was vigilant to exercise his spirit. Now, finally, uh, H says to exercise our spirit is to pray, to approach God in a personal and confiding manner, for the interests of God, Christ, the kingdom of God, and the house of God, as the goal in God's eternal economy, First Kings eight forty-eight. This is Solomon, the Lord through Solomon uh, speaking, and uh, Solomon says that when your people pray toward your toward their land and toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, you know may you answer them. And so the land signifies the all-inclusive Christ. The city signifies the kingdom of God, and the house, house of God signifies the church of God. So our prayers should always be aimed at God's interest. Christ, the kingdom of God, and the church as the house of God. So no matter whom we're praying for, our prayers shouldn't be aimed at them. Our pressure before them but they should be aimed at God's interests. Christ, the kingdom of God, and the church as the house of God. Okay, this is message one. Praise the Lord. Now let's come back and read the title to this message again. Cleaving to the healthy teaching of God's eternal economy and living in the divine dispensing God in Christ into our being through the exercise of our spirit unto godliness. Okay, Saints, let's pray with our neighbor for a minute or so, and then the brothers will tell us what to do from there.